I'm Michael Hasted, and welcome to Arts Talk Radio, which brings you interviews, news and reviews relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, which are either in English or where language is no problem. We concentrate on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and everything in between or nearby. Talk Radio Online. Features on the arts in English. Following on from the success of the play and dramatised short story that we broadcast recently, here's another short story by Atta Burkhard. This one is called The Mouse Coat, and like the first one, Making for Paradise, it's about two young girls in post-war Europe. Atta is with us now. Hello and welcome to Arts Talk Radio. Hello. Now, uh, the story we're going to hear today is based very much more on actual events than the first story we heard. That was a fictionalised account of what happened when you were a very small child, and I think this story we're going to hear now is is much more literal. Yes, absolutely. It's it's a story between two children. Um, We lived in this terrible house which had been bombed and badly repaired, and it was just full of mice. And my older sister, who was extremely uh, adventurous, had this idea. Well, don't don't give the story away. <laughs> okay, had she she had ideas of wanting to be a grand lady and have a fur coat, basically. And this is your sister, who has also figured very largely in um, your, the the book you're working on at the moment. What's that called? Uh, the book is in two parts. It's called The Tin Spoon, which goes up to my uh, tenth year, and then after that in France it goes up to my seventeenth year when I left for London. And it's basically the story between the relationship between my rebellious and very reckless sister and myself within the family group and within the family dynamic. And then later in London, when we both lived in London, then things really took quite a bad turn. Because I think uh, she was quite a a rebel, I think would be a polite way of putting it. Today you would probably take a child like that to a psychologist because she was very badly affected by what happened to her when she was very small, the aftermath of the war, the dysfunctional, my dysfunctional father, my despairing mother. And so all that played into her kind of rebellion. Plus she looked rather strange she looked oriental for some strange inherited reason and so she always felt very different and she hated it she used to run around the house crying i want to be ordinary i want to be normal so this played out through right through to when she actually died um so i don't really want to give too much away of that but despite her need or want to be normal she was in fact quite extraordinary the story we're going to hear now is a story which is i think uh, is it actually in the book, the story? Yes, it is. OK, so this is a self-contained story, but it is very much part of uh, The Tin Spoon, which will be hopefully published fairly soon. OK, well, thank you very much, Atterberg. We will now listen to The Mouse Coat. The Mouse Coat by Atta Burkhardt. The mouse lice splayed, its pink delicate limbs contracting in erratic spasms. Soon they will stop. 
This time the wire has snapped clean on the neck. This is how my sister Britta prefers it. I guiltily agree. At least it was a quick death. Sometimes we find the mice lying sideways in the trap with bellies squelching, or upside down with their pink, trembling noses pointing at us. Britta's preference for the neck snap has a different reason. That way, it doesn't damage the fur, she says. We sit on the stairs that run down from the spooky attic. The dust lies so thick, it muffles our hushed voices, swallows the words like the black mouth of the rapacious beast that lives in the corners where light never shines. We have never seen it, but we are certain of it. Britta has convinced me that she has heard it, from time to time, when she's alone. Giant spiders and other monsters live among the broken floorboards. The wooden stairs are rough, but our bottoms are so cold we don't notice the splinters. We usually find the trapped mice in the triangular space under the stairs where the brooms and the cleaning buckets are kept. A damp fungus stink of dust and dirty rags itches in our nose when we quickly reach and pick up the mouse trap. Britta is nearly seven, I am four and a half. She is trying to prise the wire off the mouse's neck. I put my hands over my eyes. If the mouse makes a sound, it is too small for me to hear. I'll cut the head off, and when we've caught enough mice, I'll make us a fur coat. I'll wear it on Saturdays and Sundays and Monday and on Tuesday. You can have it on the other days. I'm not surprised she has reserved the most important days of the week for herself. She can already see herself parading up and down on Sundays, watched by envious neighbours. She will do all the work, so I'm almost grateful. I'll only have to freeze on four days of the week, not seven. We both crave a fur coat. Two fur coats are almost the only things my mother saved when she fled from her home during the war. The fur coat and a crocodile handbag and matching shoes. My sister and I have long agreed that fur coats must be very important. Why else would she take them rather than her family, her piano or even her adored fiancé? The kitchen door facing us is open a crack. I can see my mother boiling the washing in a tin bath, stirring it with a big stick on the large range where the fire burns day and night. The fire must never go out or we shall freeze. Hubertina is our neighbour's daughter. She looks like a scrawny, bloodless chicken with a skin rash and constantly scratches her neck raw. She says someone in the next street let the fire go out and the blankets froze to a boy's body in the night. Hubertina is nine, so we believe her. My imagination races. I can see the weeping parents by the bed in the morning. They discover their boy in the folds of the blanket, hard and stiff and white, the frost standing on it like icing sugar. He has turned into a sausage wrapped in white paper. The ends are twisted like a boiled sweet. Next to our kitchen there is another room, separated only by a curtain which was once a bedspread in my grandmother's Viennese apartment. No doubt she imagines that her gift graces a nice clean bed with lace pillowcases. 
If she saw it today, she would, as always, make sure that she had been seen crying silently by the window to show everyone how much she is suffering. In between crying bouts, which could last for several weeks, she would pause to reflect, to no one in particular, how we have fallen before weeping on. The room next to the kitchen is a no-go area. No man's land, as my father calls it. The centre floorboards are broken. So is the joist underneath, so is the ceiling on the ground floor. A bomb fell right through the middle of the house, we are told. If we peek into the dark room, we can see the family on the ground floor sitting at table. I have dreamt that I walk into this room only to find myself falling onto their dining table and into their big tureen of pea soup and being eaten along with the sausages which float around in it. When the bomb fell through the house, they were not at table, though sometimes I wish that they had been. When they are eating, we sit in our kitchen and speak in hushed voices. They are proper Germans, we are told by my father, not refugees like us from a faraway land. They do not like us and find any excuse to speak badly of us. In the beginning, whenever my mother set foot outside the front door, the woman below would rush to her window, tear it open and shout, Go home, you gypsies! We would both search my mother's face for a sign of indignation. She pretended not to hear the insults and continued to smile at us as she walked down the street. Other women leaning against their front doors, gossiping, would say similar things within our hearing. Sitting on the bottom step of the stairs, we can hear our mother at the kitchen range. The floorboards creak each time she moves. Perhaps one day they will break, like the ones in the other room. Across the landing, Mr. Shemansky's leg went through a hole in the floor. My father was called to help the screaming man who was clinging to the joists. His leg was hanging through the downstairs ceiling. No one else came to help because Mr. Shemansky is Polish. We each have one pair of stockings, one pair of knickers, one dress and one cardigan. Drying our few clothes over the kitchen range is a complicated juggling act for my mother and it takes most of the night. The stockings and woolens hang on the brass bar that runs around the entire range. My father's work clothes hang on a washing line above and also need regular turning. He works as a lumberjack now, and his clothes smell of resin. To me, it is the best smell in the world. When he comes home, he brings me little splinters of pine full of sticky resin. He lights them for me. They hiss and spit and burn like magic candles. After his supper, he lies on the sofa and listens to opera on the radio. His hands are not used to the rough work. They bleed and my mother sits on the edge of the sofa and disinfects them. But they talk about how they used to go to the opera and the dresses and the jewels she used to wear. It sounds like the king's castle in my storybook full of princesses wearing tiaras. We are not supposed to sit on the cold stairs, so we make ourselves very small for fear of being discovered by my mother. How many mice do we need to make a coat? I whisper. 
Not many, Britta says with an important air. I'll stretch the skins. Perhaps if we'd caught a crocodile, my sister would now have plans to make a handbag and shoes. They are vicious beasts. Skinning a crocodile would not seem so bad to me, and we could make a necklace from the teeth. Perhaps I can change my sister's mind before she gets going on the mouse with my mother's potato knife. Just think how many shoes we could make out of a crocodile, I offer. Stupid. Where can I find a crocodile here, comes the reply. There is a zoo in Brussels, Mama told me. I argue in a futile hope of putting off the gruesome skinning of the mouse. Britta has got it all worked out. You just cut there. She shows me the soft pink belly. Then you peel the skin off, like a sock. She read it in a book about Red Indians, she says. Do we have to cut off the heads? I cringe. My shoulders go up. My mouth pulls wide and down in fear and disgust. I can already see Britta swinging my father's axe down on the tiny creature. Of course we do! She's outraged by my lack of sense. We can't go out into the street with all those mouse faces hanging from our coat. And the pink ears? People would laugh at us. The Mouse Coat by Atta Burkhard was read by Kate Davis and produced by Michael Hasted for Arts Talk Radio. Arts Talk magazine provides the perfect companion to Arts Talk Radio with reviews and previews in English of cultural events in Holland. Whatever your interest in the arts, our international team of writers will always provide something new and exciting to see online. That's Arts Talk Magazine, all one word, dot NL. Arts Talk Magazine, dot NL. I'm sitting here again with art historian Wendy Fossen of Casa dell'Arte, and again, it's been a pleasure um, to talk to Wendy a little bit about a museum that we all know. It's called now called the Kunstmuseum, right here in The Hague. Uh, recently, there was a special celebration of the building of the Kunstmuseum. Wendy, this, you've just been telling me, and I didn't really appreciate how special this place is, the, the actual building. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when was it built and, and what was the inspiration? Um, the building is was finished in 1935, um, and the, it's it, the exhibition that you're referring to is is actually running now. So hopefully, when Corona is over, we can still go and see that. Uh, and I, I strongly advise you to do so because, as as Zoe said, it is um, a very a special building. It's something that you don't really realize because you just think oh I'll go to the museum and um, you usually go for the exhibitions I think we take it for granted you take it for granted Mm. exactly but um, ever since 1985 the museum itself uh, has been given a number uh, a collection number so it's actually part of the oh, Kunstmuseum collection wow, the so building the itself. building itself that's a bit unusual isn't it's it? very unusual and it also 
shows you immediately how special this building is and that we shouldn't take it for granted and that I hope to invite you next time when you go to the museum or just pass it because now when we can't go in it's still very much worth your while to actually go there and experience the museum from the outside because you can walk mm. still walk around it i mean there's no mm. gates or something so you can still walk True. around it i must say that I'm, I'm i was quite hyped today because i did a, a class this morning in the museum online uh, so i was really really glad to be there again and to experience the museum because when you talk about the museum building itself it is such a nice building to work in because as you already noticed yourself when we talked before we started the mm. interview um it's a daylight museum so it's not as dark as for instance the Rijksmuseum in mm. Amsterdam and and the, the difference is that that was built in the late 19th century with a complete different idea mindset. in mind mindset absolutely then then the Kunstmuseum so it is definitely and that's that's also um because it was built as a museum the Rijksmuseum of course was also built as a museum mm. but um the 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 architect Hendrik Petrus Berlage and uh, Onno van Gelder uh the the director uh, they had this idea that um this building would be like a cultural center so like the cult culture forum that they actually have built or are building now um the idea was that it was it was going to be that it was going to be that now you did show me previously and uh, wendy and i'm sorry that our listeners couldn't see these these images um fascinating uh plans of this museum but Perhaps you can tell us, you showed me the original plan, which yeah. was a phenomenal building, it, and I would never have dreamt of anything was, like that. It was huge. I mean, the, the original the, the, the original designs, and then were, you have to realize that even before the, the Great War, so the First World War, there were already plans to build a museum, but mm. it kind of fell through because of all the, 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 the war um, period, and then they picked up the, the whole plan, and they... Um, um, uh, set out to design this museum and then the first plans are about uh, 1920 uh, and then when when you know the site you you know that it's a fairly big site and then you have to realize that also the chem as well as the um, the hotel behind it that was all the side of the museum on that side they could build a museum and the first design was huge it was immense it was about 14,500 square meters Incredible. that would make it one and a half times bigger than the um, Rijksmuseum so just to give you an idea but what is left of that <laughs> great plan is only about 5,000 square meters. Well, it's still fairly large. It is but large. It, it wasn't just, okay, the size is impressive when you see the little models, um, but the way they'd set it out, it, it had all these rather attractive domes, and indeed you said it was styled on, on the... The Hagia Sophia. In, in, yeah. in Istanbul. Yeah, that, the idea of the domes. So, so that then all got taken out. Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's nothing left of it um, apart from the, the 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 bodies in between the domes were like the blocks that you still see here. They called it um, a, a cigar box architecture <laughs> because that's what they they it reminded them of, um, and. Um, 
it was it was huge because it, the the whole idea was that it would be a cultural center mm. that would be like um, uh, uh, a theater space, uh, an auditorium for about twenty five hundred people. Well, we still have the aula, the mm. the lecture room, uh, but that hosts only about hundred people, a bit more than that. So it's it just gives you an idea of how much smaller the whole uh, museum has become, and um, it's it's quite a shame, but also under understandable and there's you know every downside has an upside and that was that they could actually figure out and think through very thoroughly what they wanted with the museum Mm. so it 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 didn't make the design worse, but it only made it better what we have now. Compact. I mean, it is still a large museum, to it be is, fair. And it even is. when you're wandering the corridors of you the museum, get lost. You, you get a sense, <laughs> yes, you do get a sense of its size. So yeah. it's not small by any means. It's the largest one in The Hague. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell us a little bit more. You've mentioned um, the, the architect, the, the designer, and you've mentioned these the cigar boxes. And indeed, we see, well, if you've ever seen this museum, you'll notice it's a sort of interesting yellowish color made of these small yellow bricks yeah um what's special about that well um, berlager um was uh, an architect who liked building buildings using materials and then also showing that particular material so when you make something of um a concrete uh the idea was to show the concrete because that was you know you would honor the material of which it was made um and we have these old photographs that you can actually see the concrete construction and his idea was simply to fill that up with so the openings between the concrete construction uh, to fill that up with brick, um, but uh, he, fortunately, well, I think it wouldn't have been very nice visually. Um, so he changed his mind. Also, again, because this museum is being built while there is the depression, mm-hmm. you know, in the late 1920s. So by building this museum, you get a lot of people working for you. So you know, it's it's better to work than just to sit at home. Um, so all these bricklayers came, and then they decided then that the whole building would be decorated with this very specific size of brick and color of brick because it's not an ordinary red brick stone that is used it is a specific stone that was called berlage stone because of the color the yellowish color Mm. and the size it's exactly five and a half by 22 by 11 and 11 is the size the basic size of the museum. So everything in the museum is a is is multiplied multiples of eleven. Multiples of eleven. So that that is also one of the reasons why it's such a nice building because it just fits you like a glove. It's as a visitor. Mathematically very sound. Well, very that's good sound. To know. <laughs> yeah. Go and have a look at the tiles on the floor because you see that they that they have a certain size and that um, the tiles on the wall uh, are yellow and they are half the size of the mm, ground house mm. and some of them are fit in there eight times or four times mm. so it is all very very calculated and visually pleasing visually pleasing mm. as well mm. yeah yeah okay so so this is something that we can really appreciate for as you said for the building itself and also the beautiful light that comes in when you are looking at the artwork that's in there and i have to say 
if you go to the atrium area, that's also beautifully light. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's all designed, I believe, around that. Yeah, the, 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 the basic layout of the museum is like a rectangle, but that is something that you don't really experience when you go in, but it, it is, the, you know, the large body of the exhibition halls is, is a, a rectangular shape uh, with inside the large uh, rectangular garden as it used to be. That, that was the design of uh, Berlage, but with the um, coming of the NSS, uh, the, the National um, uh, Nuclear Summit, what was it? The Well, anyway, the nuclear summit where Obama came, they they decided to um, to speed things up because the idea is that museums nowadays have to generate money themselves, so you want to organize events. Uh, so we had this large garden uh, that is now uh, covered, so we have um, uh, an open space mm. to be used for all kinds of events. So yeah. you can have your your business meal, and you have like sh your shell having their annual dinners that can What's all be a very arranged. Pleasant space. Exactly, mm. and you can then also book uh, like um, a tour of a, a specific exhibition, or just have the whole museum open. So you know that kind of events generate money. So that's they, that's why they decided to cover it up. But mm. originally it was just an open a garden which was very nice in a sense that when you were visiting the exhibitions you could just have a break and mm. you just take a breath of fresh air and have your coffee there um, but then you know that that now changed but it's it's you know it took a while for me to get used to because I like just to pop out to the yeah, garden. Yeah, I've never for... seen it with the garden, but it's yeah, an interesting yeah. idea. It sounds almost Mediterranean, actually, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And you also mentioned the special, the entrance and the special crossing. Yeah. Because you, uh, that's something that struck me about the museum when I first arrived. I thought, why, why do we need to be taking this long walk down this corridor to get to the to get to the, the, entrance. the entrance? It seems a little strange. It 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 is strange in a sense, but it. It's all about that Berlage and Van Gelder wanted to make sure that the museum was accessible for everybody. And you have to, again, see it in the context of time. This is upcoming socialism. They want to lift the ordinary people who do not go to the museum by themselves, who weren't raised, you know, these are not the lawyers and the judges and, you know, all those nobility professionals. Uh, professionals. So it is your, your everyday, your butcher, your, your whatever people who are not likely to go to a museum and you want them to come to your museum and that goes basically for any any museum visitor whether you're you're from the the, the top you know social ladder or the bottom the idea is that when you walk through that corridor you leave the street behind you you are welcomed by the um, the, the, the uh, personification of the Hague so this lady representing the Hague uh, welcome you welcoming you almost open-armed and um, telling you that you should be open for the art that you're going to see. And that's why you have these these ponds on the left and right hand side, as if, as if side. you know, you're washed away from all your problems, from all your daily troubles. Uh, you leave that behind on the street. And then slowly but steadily, you're kind of prepared for the art that you're going to see. And that's the whole idea. 
So yeah. I think that's a beautiful idea. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm much more appreciative now of this little trundle yeah. that one takes uh, <laughs> along along the corridor. Okay. But then again, you... when you're queuing, you stand dry instead of outside. So that's, that's attractive <laughs> as well. Yeah. <laughs> and then you see also the mock-ups of the um, of the, the original plan. So you can see that huge plan. And the next room, you see the downsize plan of what the museum is now um, and of course today you know when the, the weather's nice and you go for a stroll on the Frederik Hendrikland just you know go around and walk around the museum and and have a look at all the different parts of the building and um, and have a look at the at the at the brick will do Wendy Fossen of Casa dell'Arte thank you so much for joining us on Arts Talk Radio today you're welcome Arts Talk Radio Online. Features on the arts in English. That was Zoe Baus at the Kunstmuseum in The Hague. Well, that's all for this edition of Arts Talk Radio. We'll be back soon with another rich mixture of interviews and features on the arts in Holland. If you have any comments, please leave them in the box below. So, until next time, it's goodbye. I'm Michael Hasted. Goodbye. Thank you.